0: This is a Sound Health Option show with Richard, talk to me guy. And Sherry Edwards is, as you know, off working on the portal, soundhealthportal.com. You can go there and click on the services tab and then click on the campaigns and you'll be able to go in and register for free. They don't spam you. They don't do anything mean. It's, they rarely contact me. And you log in for free, and you'll be able to take any of the free campaigns that are running currently. And I think it might be BioDiet. There may be still a PTSD up there. And there are a couple of others. They change the campaigns, meaning that those are the free options where you can go and take uh, two 45-second recordings right on your computer, submit them for the campaign that you want to see. There's the software that you want your vocal print run through, the vocal recording. And within a couple of hours to a day, you get these reports, email, and with an amazing amount of information, truly amazing. And then you can take that to your healthcare practitioner, sit down with a cup of tea or coffee of your choice, and review that information in a form that's really, Portal is really amazing at how much information it has running at this time is really quite extraordinary. And the ability to do it all online is wonderful. I'm so happy about that. So Sherry's doing that. And now I'm going to say, you'll be able to find the replay of this show with Elizabeth uh, dosed about cannabis in the real world of the medical world. You'll be able to find the replay of this show right after you hear the music at the end. You'll be able to find it in about 10 or 15 minutes at soundhealthoptions.com. Click on the radio tab, click on the sound health radio tab, and the link there will be at the bottom of the flyer for today's show with Elizabeth, and you'll be able to click there and go back to the, the website with the page and the replay and the show notes, and or you'll be able to go to any of your podcast aggregators or podcatchers, meaning iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts is cross-platform, and is coming around really quite well. It's, it's really a clean, easy-to-use app. I like it a lot. And you can use it anywhere. With all of those, actually, now that I think about it, you can then share the show. Because for anybody that's in pain or having suffering of any kind or, well, not necessarily of any kind, but I mean, just there's a myriad of positive uses of cannabis. And Elizabeth is an expert in this. And this is going to be a show filled with lots of really great information and advocacy for patients and people. And with that, Elizabeth G. Dost is a registered nurse and senior healthcare executive with more than 25 years' experience in the Boston area healthcare market. She is currently serving as a senior executive healthcare consultant in medical cannabis and has done so since 2012, making her generally recognized as the first nurse in Massachusetts to publicly advocate for the humanitarian use of medical marijuana. Beth is a registered participant of My Compassion and Americans for Safe Access, and serves as clinical director for the Massachusetts Patients Advocacy Alliance. She's been a featured guest on radio, having completed an interview on opioids and marijuana for NPR out of WGBH Boston, THC Tucson, Patients Out of Time Radio, and Fox News in Boston, to name a few. Beth appears in the seven-episode docuseries, The Sacred Plant, along with other leaders in cannabis medicine. She was recently featured in The Sacred Plant, both in taped interview on suffering and live Q&A on cannabis. Welcome, Elizabeth.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Richard, and your
0: audience. So I think I want to start. We, we talked to you. I was, I was shocked to find it's been two years since I've talked to you. Wow. Because uh, we, talked, we talked in August. Exactly. <laughs> if We talked in <laughs> August 2017.
1: Yes, that was
0: a have there was been, an,
1: We had a nice talk.
0: We had a great talk.
1: Yeah, had a great talk.
0: Have there been changes in your work with cannabis since 2017? Have things eased, softened, gotten easier? More well, fluid?
1: Um, all Any of, of the above. All of the above, depending on where you are, who you're talking to, and what is your particular stance when you're talking to these people. And I don't mean these people in a disrespectful way. I just mean various groups of people. And so my um, it hasn't changed too much. Well, of course, in Massachusetts, we passed the adult use law passed. And we anticipated that that would create concerns for patients, and we correctly anticipated that. And so the fight for patients continue. For, people, for the people that brought this movement to the forefront were the patients, and we want to make sure that our patients are not marginalized uh, beyond the um, interests of business. So in other words, there is some equity that is part of the cannabis adult use laws and uh, interpretation thereof, advocacy for and I just my public outcry is that the, the most marginalized, the most discriminated against, the most fragile people, continue to be those that chronically suffer and or need this medicine, and that and that usually goes hand in hand. So it's a constant reminder. In a world where it's federally illegal, so in Massachusetts we have a tendency to kind of live in this little bubble, bubble of uh, legality, and then you re- realize that 18 other, 17, 18 other states have no medical cannabis laws on the books, and we, I ha- you have to step back and say, well, it's available to everyone here. It's just. How are we making it available? So the fight has changed a little bit. It's not for that initial breakthrough. I do like to advise states on how to get their ball rolling, so to speak, in their state. Um, And then um, we also are seeing an uptick in suffering with the war on opioids. The war on opioids has an unintended consequence, which has been the chronic pain patient, that um, is now being forced to taper when they had been safely being managed on opioids. And a lot of them have added cannabis to their um, tools that they I say they have in their box, their suffering box, they have tools. And so uh, yes and no. Some of it's gotten easier, some of it hasn't, but I can give you an example, and I will. Uh, the Massachusetts Nurses Association, who had me speak to uh, their four regions after the last one, decided not to have me go come back and speak more on cannabis so um, hmm. even though in my last uh, conference when I asked who of you has heard of the endocannabinoid system and not one hand went up of the 120 participators. So, um, yeah, uh, we are still uh, not allowing for the flow of education and information in federally managed institutions. So there's a lot of work to be done.
0: And there's so many directions. There's about 16 directions I want to go there, but I'm going to ask this. (laughs) Sure. Um, How does the federal position on cannabis affect a doctor who wants to make a recommendation on cannabis? Does that, does that cause them to feel constricted or I'll use the word scared, but I don't mean it quite that strong. Well, kind of, I mean, it's their license. How do they feel even though you're in a state where it's kind of okay um, to do that? How do, how do physicians feel that setting aside their desire to do it or their interest in cannabis, how do they feel about writing a recommendation for cannabis because of the feds still having this position?
1: Um, I think it depends on the physician, but uh, truly it does. I mean, we have about 290 recommendation writers in the state of Massachusetts Of all the physicians in Massachusetts We have about 290 uh, Recommendation writers And uh, serving about 60,000 patients now And so that's just a fraction Of people that would like to become uh, Patients So to answer your specific question about physicians I think it depends on The physician uh, And what they, their education On cannabis And once that they understand about uh, the endocannabinoid system and how patients improve, I think most of them are for it, but a lot of them won't write for it, and it's because of that federal, that federal position. When they work for large health, and, you know, we have some pretty well-known hospitals in Boston, Mass General Hospital, Brigham and Women's, the Children's Hospital, of Boston, so we have some pretty big institutions, Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital, and they um, you know they all bill federal federal entities, and once you're in that that wheel, um, the feds have great power over the actions of um, or or over at least the threat against physicians, even though they're supposed to be protected in the state under Conant versus Walters. So while they're supposed to be protected under the state, larger healthcare organizations have. Uh, made statements about their writing um, against it, and to the extent that they want to comply with that, they do. And then I think they refer out to the physicians that they know will write for cannabis. So I think it depends on how far they want to go or how much they want to dip that toe into um, federal waters. So I think, and I think it's that way sort of nationwide. It, for example, we have a statute in Massachusetts which is unique to our um, state that I fought for, which was the Institutional Caregiver Act. And that was supposed to be, the, this, the the real purpose of that was that people that lived in institutions, be it in assisted living, nursing home, were on hospice, were in the, the hospice, um, were receiving the hospice benefit, could get quick, easy access, we could establish the Um, institution being like a caregiver having the right to receive and distribute cannabis to patients that qualify for it. And to my knowledge, not one institution has, although I've mightily um, um, advocated for it and have visited a number of institutions, I just can't get one to step up and do that, and it's because of the federal laws, mm-hmm. they all bill Medicare. Even, but you, you, what's interesting to me is that even the uh, assisted livings, where people are basically paying to live there privately, um, have uh, reluctance to allow cannabis. And so it's, um, it's, we are not nearly where we should be with this botanical
0: and, is that, and so I just want to be, make sure I get this. So yep. you, you feel that most that is really a result of all of these um, institutions, whether it be a hospice care or a retirement center or whatever, are getting some kind of federal funding. So they're really That's concerned. Right. they're concerned about their federal funding. therefore it keeps them from using a perfectly viable, helpful, non-negative potential beneficial to their clients i'll put air quotes around medicine cuz I don't like to really call cannabis a medicine cuz right. it's an herb right
1: yes that's what i'm saying and i'm all and wow. i'm also saying that um, even when you and what and part of that goes back to and what people don't understand is that um, the um, Attorney General, the AG's office, has the ability to levy stiff fines against any institution who um, employs anyone that's gotten a uh, ding on their record. So, for example, and they're not allowed to, uh, because they bill Medicare, the entire institution has to look at all of its employees. So as you start opening up the door to doing to uh, Using something that still remains federally illegal, you're also opening up the door to people that might have experience in cannabis and may have some sort of a record or have been disciplined. And if those and, and then they get excluded from Medicare, the Medicare list, and that exclusion could be a nurse, a nurse who had been a physician or had some sort of um, something that shows up on her quarry or shows up on her when you check the register, there's a register of excluded individuals. And if that person is employed and receives money from your organization, it can result in stiff fines. And so it just opens up the hospitals. It just ties the hospital's hands a little more. But my objection is that there really is no law against education. And so... When the Mass Nurses Association uh, reluctantly but saw this as a hugely evolving, very impactful issue on patients, allowed me to speak to them uh, at all four regions. And then the last region had some concerns about the subject matter because it's, I guess, remains controversial. Um, They decided not to go forward with more education. And that's really where I think health professionals fall down. Not in that they can't, maybe they elect not to write a recommendation, but that there's no law that says you can't be educated on anything. But there has been sort of an assault on um, freedom of speech and talking and Point, different points of view, being aired very liberally, um, no matter what they are. I, I've seen a sort of a decrease in that over the past couple of years anyway, so it sort of falls in line. Instead of teaching the controversial stuff or the hard stuff, let's just, not, let's just pretend it's not an issue in the healthcare. I don't like that thinking, so that's my concern. Not that well, the hospitals and, don't don't administer cannabis, but that their, right. their 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 staff are not educated in cannabis.
0: Right. And they should be. Well, I want to and I want to go back to that group that you spoke to where a large percentage of them didn't know what the endocannabinoid system was or was not right. aware of it. And those right. were Did you say those were nurses? nurses. What was that group? And nurses. how is that and and is it are they? do you think that there's a percentage of those people that want to say they don't know about it for that kind of fear? I mean, do we have that kind of oppression where people are even nervous to acknowledge anything about it because they're afraid they're going to get a ding on their whatever that is? Profile? I don't
1: know. I don't know if they're um, afraid to embrace it. Um, I think that the individual thinker, has to decide how up-to-date they want their thinking to be when they have a healthcare professional tell them that there is, ask them if they've heard of the endocannabinoid system and they haven't, and then that person tells them that it's the largest modulator in the human body and that every mammal has one. So either you decide at that point that, whoa, I need to look at this, which was my reaction, Or you get, or you make some objection to it. So I don't, I don't really know why there's objection Mm -hmm. to education about the endocannabinoid system. I would think that, you know, there. I have seen the pendulum swing where there. I know physicians that want to include endocannabinoid health in their practice. Of maybe whatever it is, internal medicine, we could just say, for example, physical mm-hmm. rehab medicine. And I've seen that as being a very exciting possibility, neurology for some patients or some physicians. Now, all the way to saw, see it swing all the way to the physician doesn't want to know anything more about it, and he'll just, and either he'll make a recommendation or he won't, or he'll send you to somebody that can refer. So I've seen it swing all the way both ways in Massachusetts.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. I did uh, Now, uh, for, well, the audience knows, but for new listeners, uh, I'm in California. So it's not like right. that here. <laughs> That's right. all I have to say. It's never been like that here. Um, yeah. Well, no, it's kind of been that like that here. But I mean, really, it's much more, it's always amazing when I talk to somebody that you're, such as yourself who's such an advocate and such an educator on the benefits and the potential. Positive effects that this can have with people who are my next subject uh, suffering uh, okay. that it amazes me when when I hear health educated people who are resistant to it and and I guess my again because i 'm in california i don 't think of that part of the oppre- the potential oppression of we seem to have an oppression i 'm not going to go too political here, but we we seem to be under an air okay. of we don't want to talk about it. So we that's how we we'll, – we'll act like we don't know because we're afraid, and that's horrible. It education is horrible. Is, education is education.
1: That's right. That's right. We should be educated on everything from all sorts of different angles. And as much as we can be, especially when it comes under, if you're in medicine and you're a physician or a nurse or a PA or a nurse practitioner or any anybody that's touching patients in a way that is um, helpful and executes um, a patient care plan or um, any any type of recovery plan for patients, you should know everything about. What as much as you can about the current issues. So, for example, I would be very, I'm very curious. I would be very curious, and I was about cannabis once I started learning about it, and um, it's so fascinating. And we still have under, we still underteach the endocannabinoid today to current students. So, this is not new science. It goes back to the 1990s. And so, you know, it's getting older. To, it's getting to be older, very well-accepted science. And um, we're still finding that large pockets of healthcare professionals have not been taught about it. And now groups that they might go to, that's, you know, it's disturbing when groups see it as so controversial in a state where it's legal that they don't even want to teach on it. So... You know, I hope that we're not, um, that that is not a continuation of because a few are uncomfortable, we won't teach to the masses, most of
0: whom which would like to hear it.
1: I I I hope that that's uh, not that
0: play. Yeah, me too.
1: I Mm -hmm. was at,
0: um, I'm going to jump ever so slightly for a moment, too. I was at Emerald Cup this last year, which is Mm -hmm. the largest cannabis event in California. And I was listening to a veterinarian, an animal doctor, veterinarian, uh, not to be confused with the vets who are in a really bad mood about having their cannabis restricted um, That's a whole other show.
1: As well, they should be.
0: Listening to to a veterinarian (laughs) talk about, and he's a leader and he's written books about using cannabis with animals for pain and for all the benefits that we know of. They also have an ECS system it's not like it's oh it's, yes. you know it's the same and he talked about how he had had his the veterinary board had threatened him and his license if he continued to use cannabis and and talk about it well not necessarily well, talk see, about it but you know they were after they were going to come after him and he was you can imagine his response was uh, no i'm going to keep doing yeah. this
1: well he's not billing medicare
0: <laughs> see, right. that's the benefit for <laughs> Let's him, go there. right? He's got a, you know, <laughs> Go that's see your a veterinarian. Gig. He'll that's help right.
1: you out. <laughs> that's right. Oh. That's right. Oh. You know, it's funny that you say that because at my last meeting where I did educate 120 nurses about the basics of cannabis, I went through an example of a, of its use in cancer, and somebody. Well, one of the nurses came up afterward and talked to me about how she knew exactly where I was going with the whole story because she had seen it in her Mastiff and her dog. And she used cannabis to prolong the, the her, uh, her dog's life uh, with good results. She had good results. So um, they did eventually. He had to put um, her dog down. But she said, such improvement with use of cannabis and so I wasn't surprised but what I am surprised about is his board saying that that is kind of rather astonishing to me you know they'll let you put a dog down
0: right right you know
1: I I mean I I think that that's kind of a bad way of saying what is such a horrible and traumatic event is you know the having to make that decision for your animal I've had to do it many times oh yeah it's a very hard thing but when you think that they will allow you, like they would allow, I had a, a little Westie that was very territorial, and she would bite first, ask questions. Smartest dog I ever had. But I decided that either we would have to put her down because I was, my children were very young, we were just starting our family, and I didn't want her biting any of the kids, which she never did. Um, or I would get, I'd pull her canines. So all those long teeth that you can, you know, those biting teeth, Mm -hmm. so all she could do is kind of nibble with her front teeth. And um, I said, he said, well, I hate to pull her teeth because they're in such good condition. And I said, well, you could put her down then because I just couldn't have it. And so he did. He pulled her teeth, but he would have put her down for biting. Well, why would you then hesitate to allow a vet to use a plant medicine to see if it would change their mood? They'll give them every, I mean, they give them so many of the um, traditionally what we think is um, used for human beings for dogs. They'll give a lot of those yeah. anti-anxiety medicines and all sorts of uh, pharmaceuticals for dogs.
0: Sure, so, and to so me, where is that
1: push coming from?
0: <laughs> right, where is that push? And mm. and to me, being an old herbalist, um, I had the herb store. You know, got my degree as a master herbalist in the eighties. Actually, the late 70s, but that sounds too far ago, uh, in the 80s, yeah. oh. and had a mail-order catalog, and a nas- national mail-order catalog in a retail herb store. So the idea of – I'll just say the veterinarian in general, but I'll say the veterinarian. And I used to work with veterinarians who had animals that were sick, and we'd put together formulas, meaning a combination of herbs – that would be for some time for something we were working on a liver issue or a lymphatic issue or an inflammation or a pain you know something, and sometimes back in the way back in the eighties man mm-hmm. we'd be using cannabis as a pain reducing device for animals and the vets were thrilled, right? Because exactly. they had something they could the patient the the owner would then. Work with the animal to reduce. I'm going to get back to this word suffering, to reduce the animal's suffering, even if it was toward end of life, just to calm the animal. You know, to allow. And I also, I would oftentimes recommend I'd recommend in those cases, if it was an end of life situation, that the person also be taking the the herbs, <laughs> because right, exactly. it's going to help calm them. Everybody
1: yourself.
0: Everybody takes something. You know, is because it, it's going to be know, beneficial. So it's just mind blowing, and I, w- I want to get to the word suffering. How does yes, well, how is suffering in medicine? A, listen, this is a little
1: side note I have to tell you. It's kind of funny. Um, I you know the, you know now this is plugging a um, TV show, but you know Outlander has been very popular. Um, yeah. On uh, it's uh, Outlander, and it just came up out on Netflix. So it's like six seasons. They just released season one. And she's an herbalist from from the 1940s. And Uh it's fascinating for me to watch when she goes to the apothecary. What does she do? They blend all these natural herbs together to get a lot of results that we get pharmaceutically now. And therein lies the secret,
0: right? That's the secret problem. When When I had the herb store, I used to collect pharmacopoeias which is the original yep. compounding, the original pharmacist compounded from basically a cookbook. But I mean, it was called the pharmacopeia. Yes. And you would see in the formulas, and they'd be taking opium poppies, and they'd be taking sure. cannabis, and they'd be taking all sorts of things, or valerian valerian yep. root, root, which is the point of origin of most of the benzodiazepams in the old days, when they used to actually extract valium mm-hmm. out of valerian root. And so that they would compound – so it's just it's, – as an herbalist, it's always been mind-bending to me that suddenly I, I used to have the feds come in once – about twice a year. They'd just appear like they – nobody would notice there were men with suits with wingtips on in the herb store. Oh, we're just <laughs> here looking. Really? I don't think so. Just get it over with
1: because like the they had a black. hit
0: list of herbs. <laughs> exactly not as fun Um, Mm -hmm. they had a hit list of herbs that they wanted labeled a certain way and I would say well what about this herb or that herb or this and they were like we have a list and that's all we know and and even then it was just like really This, this herb over here is actually dangerous the herb you're telling me needs to be labeled wormwood let's say which was used to make absinthe back in the old day and still is was a narcotic and they were worried about that. Oh my, that has to be like And it's just this weird conundrum of, have you ever looked at a pharmacopoeia? Do you know what that is? Do you know what pharmacists used to do? They used to be kind of herbal blenders mm-hmm. and refiners to make substances. Mm-hmm. So to have herbs be on a hit list of bad, to me, t- cannabis is no different than dandelion root or yellow dock or anything. They all right. have different benefits. Right. Um, so where is, is suffering in the language of medicine? How and is there a scale for it? How is pain measured? How are those all, those things all, you know, addressed?
1: Well, um, ask the CDC and our government how it's being addressed because they're usurping uh, power out of the pay, uh, physician-patient relationship on a daily basis. It's very mm. concerning. And if you're a patient and you're not concerned, you should be. Because if you're not a patient that's actively seeing your physician, it's because you're healthy. But this is really about if something goes wrong, and something goes wrong for everybody usually at some point in their life. And I don't wish anything, but it's just a fact of life. We age, we have accidents, people get diseases, and uh, we're basically designed to die, right? I mean, ultimately, that is our fate, and nobody escapes it. And so then it comes to what's the quality of your life and who determines, who makes that decision, what the quality of your life is going to be. And it used to be that it was between you and your physician, and it was private. It was between you and your physician. We had less privacy issues before HIPAA than we do now. And so, you know... It was just every once in a while you'd see a sign, watch out what you're talking about in an elevator because you're sharing them with patients. And, uh, okay, I get that. But, um, yeah, who's involved in the patient relationship with the physician now? Well, big pharma, big government, state legislators, your governor, your senator, they're all involved in your relationship with your physician. So, part of this whole assault on suffer on patients that suffer started for me not only with my personal uh, my own personal interest in it but um, the fact that you had to you have to go on to a register when you become a cannabis patient in probably every state that has legal cannabis laws. You register here in Massachusetts, you're qualified, and then your name goes into a database that was maintained by the Department of Public Health, and then they issue you your card, uh, which you pay for. And then annually you get a little email that reminds you, it's like being in the RMV, that you're going to even more attentive, that your um, certification is starting to um, come up for renewal. And who does that and who sees that? And there's no guarantee about that. Um, about HIPAA involved in your relationship with the the government with a federally illegal substance. And now you're on a list and uh, the White House called for the Massachusetts list about some time ago. It's hard to judge time since I didn't realize it had been two years since I had talked to you last. So just recently, and uh, we we said no, Uh, but clearly the list is being kept and it's being used and it's being looked at and under what rules, in what world do patients have to sign and uh, reveal to their state government what they're doing to mitigate their disease or their symptoms of their disease. And in doing so, you have to reveal then what your disease is. And so it's just the collection of data. I understand there are pl- private platforms that collect data because you offer it so that patients can learn from the experience of other patients that have similar problems and suffer in ways that are similar, but for the government to be getting involved in and managing it, and we see this too with opiates and um, the war on opiates. You know, forty-four thousand people die of overdoses, but only it's the physician prescribing has been so conflated. But now, prescri- um, and uh, it's an under, it's, it's termed the unintended consequences of the opioid, um, the uh, war on opioids. And so to answer your question, you know, about 15 years ago, studies showed that children that had no voice and the elderly, including the elderly with Alzheimer's, because Alzheimer's did not show in studies to be affected, but, uh, the brain, uh, the pain centers of the brain were not affected. And so they, but they got resultant um, large percentage less medicated for pain than their uh, counterparts or her, their peers that had no um, disruption of their mentation or their ability to ask. And so this original look back at pain and this awareness of pain. And of course, pain is a subjective experience, so you have to believe the patient and what they say um, was highly was considered taken into great account by the medical community, and pain became the fifth vital sign. And now, nobody has pain. We've swung so far, the other way, that chronic pain patients are being threatened with forced tapers, or their doctors are just stopping. Their pain practice because they're afraid of getting in trouble for writing prescriptions. And so there are patients, they're starting to keep a suicide log of pain patients that are um, taking their life because they were being well maintained on whatever cocktail of drugs that they had arrived at. And I, I say arrived because most people that have chronic pain do arrive at some sort of. Place where they can manage their life and have a balance, and it takes it can take a long time to get there. And then they have people, insurance companies that just come in and just disrupt the whole thing. And it, it's happening every day. And so um, there are some, you know, Twitter lights up about it, and people are feeling a little powerless. And pain patients are very tired. And um, I was just at a, a city meeting in Cambridge, and I noticed that probably half the attendees identified themselves by wearing a T-shirt as a, as a cannabis patient. But I also noted that the time that this took place, this, this public hearing, was not at a great time for a pain patient. They would have to, they'd have to fight a lot of traffic, I mean, unbelievable traffic, Boston number one traffic in the country and uh, to get there. And I thought, the room is not teeming with patients because they don't feel well enough to be here. So I've noticed a pattern sometimes of um, also a timing of these patient-centric or patient-charged uh, meetings where the patients can't actually have a hard time getting there. Because remember, I told you, you know, in my opinion, they are the most marginalized and it goes across all ages, all socioeconomics, all heritage, all races, both sexes, any sex you identify with. It all, suffering knows no boundaries. And so um, I don't like to see timing of meetings when you're going to talk about patients and patients' rights to be a difficult time for patients.
0: Right. And when yeah. you said that thing about, Alzheimer's patients not able to express themselves clearly right. when they're in pain. It mm-hmm. also makes me think of infants yes. who are in pain and, yeah. and again, they're not equipped with the ability to, exp- you know, they seem like fussy baby Right. versus, the, you know, is this, and I'm painting a slightly broader picture talking about it could be an environmental exposure. It could be a toxic load. It could be an allergic reaction. It could be any number of things. Right. But you you see this cascade of, and I think it's similar with the Alzheimer's patients, where they just dose them up. I, I was in a, I had a series of uh, surgeries. I was in a healthcare facility for a year uh, mm. with about 400 other people. So I yeah, was around people awful. and I was ambulatory Sorry. for three quarters of that. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so I was around a lot of people who were like Alzheimer's people or in and out I'll say, yes. and not because of the drugs, because of their whatever they were dealing with. That's right. And they would get them to a point of, especially being in a facility, where they were, the kind of the goal in the facility was to get them to a stable place where they were not interrupting the flow of the work day. So mm-hmm. there's, this, there's a thing where it's about getting the patient to be compliant for the people managing that patient versus really caring for the patient. That's right. I mean, they're trying to care for the patient, but they're trying to get the patient to be uh, wranglable, I guess is the word I want. Not quite the word I want, but something like that, to be managed. And I think that happens. I've seen this with infants or youngsters who can't express themselves, who seem like they're either people talk about them being on the spectrum or being something, and maybe it's an allergic reaction. Right. Maybe it's a toxic load from some exposure they had as a child. Maybe yes. it's because they're crawling around on the carpets in their living room and their parents live in an agricultural area and there's more pesticides on their carpet than there is outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's it's any number of things. So people get this. That's why I'm such a – I really – you know, suffering is a thing that is a sleeper that I don't see You – you're one of the few people that I hear really talking about it in a really strong way like, hey – What's this is not right. <laughs> it's
1: not right. I think that we in the in the year two thousand and nineteen have a right to live our lives the way we want to, and um, to be free from suffering, whatever it takes the physician and the patient to get them there. And you know, you really can't judge suffering in another person because you are, and we, and there are many different types of suffering. You know, and that's that's what's so nice, if we get back to cannabis, is that the endocannabinoid system tends to dictate, because it, it looks to restore homeostasis, it tends to have an awareness of where the suffering is, um, whether it be global, whether it be a hip, or whether it be isolated, um, a bowel or whatever, and uh, the cannabinoids seem to seek out and find those areas that need um, balance and restoration and that's why it's such a exciting herb but yet we live in such a punishing environment I, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and she said why is everything so punishing, it feels so punishing um, in the United States you know, we're punishing sick people, we're punishing our veterans who commit suicide generally related to PTSD 22 a day uh, we haven't handled that Properly, We haven't handled it respectfully. We haven't handled it dignified in a thankful manner as we all should be with our veterans. We don't care, you know, we we care a lot about a lot of different things, but you're right, no one talks about suffering and people are suffering probably more now than I can ever remember uh, watching. And I think it's because a lot of it goes right back to that interruption of the physician-patient relationship. And that was started, I think, back with the DRGs, the diagnostic-related groups. I remember, you know, I was a nurse long enough to know what it was like before that. And, uh, you know, mothers would stay three, four days after they had a baby, and Uh, learn how to get through that sort of initial phase of kind of shock and awe, you know, when you especially have a first baby and get a lot of nursing care and teaching and really be treated in that gentle, respectful manner that a new mother should be treated in and and sent home with the necessary, um, at least to the best of their ability, the necessary um, knowledge that they would need to take care of their infant. And it was reinforced because they stay in the hospital longer but then the insurance companies started to figure out ways to cut costs but the cut costing didn't necessarily go to relieving um bottom line expenses it just went to create larger healthcare systems where we control our patients more and as as we inject our our control or third party control over patients and physicians and we start tying the hands of our physicians well, what do you think happens to care of the patient? And so it's very, it's very scary. It's a very, very scary thing. And I've watched that whole system sort of erode and change, and I don't think that we are any better off. In fact, we probably spend more money now with less time, uh, both by nurses and doctors, spent actually seeing the patients because writing to justify payment of the service seems to be very important because what the doctor says anymore doesn't seem to matter in regards to what it, the patient receives and so mm-hmm. it's um, and if we don't have our physicians being the gatekeepers you watch who's going to be the gatekeeper i mean just you know you've heard hundreds of stories of my physician wants me to have this my insurance company won't pay for it And I'm talking to a doctor that has never met me. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I just said, you know, I I kind of really boldly went out and said politicians and lawyers would flip their lids if doctors and nurses made decisions about what they could or couldn't do professionally. Yet they legislate all over the place what physicians
0: can do. And Mm -hmm. um, it's wrong. It's wrong. And it's the
1: patients that pay Patient that pays.
0: Yeah, it's back to suffering, yeah. and that's why I, I'm back to so suffering. I'm, I'm really cranky about suffering. I'm very cranky about necessary. suffering. That's right. Um, and go ahead.
1: Well, I like to. I when I talk about suffering, I talk about. I, I have three things that I generally say about suffering. We're very comfortable as a country with people being uncomfortable. I don't understand that. I live in a part of the country, I live in the greater Boston area, and I was born in Connecticut, so I live where we have a lot of Yankee and we have a lot of puritanical and Calvinistic uh, views that permeate the way we practice medicine. But it doesn't just permeate it in Massachusetts or in New England. Since it all kind of went west from the settlement of the pilgrims, et cetera, in this location, we have a curative um, bent to our dealings with uh, disease. And most diseases are palliated. They're not cured. And then, um, so we have this Calvinistic puritanical view on suffering where there was some, there's some redemption to suffering. And I don't think there's any redemption to suffering. And I think that comes through in our medical and in ed- academic institutions. And then I love to quote Primo Levi, who was a Holocaust survivor and very um, well known for his writings and his opinions. And um, he says, if not now, when? And uh, mm. that's how I talk about cannabis. And he also says, if we know that there is suffering and we do nothing to alleviate it, we ourselves have become the tormentors. So mm. I like to ask political bodies, you know, how do they want to be remembered? And, and mm. who, is the mo- who, are, who really are the most marginalized when you look mm-hmm. at our, in our world? They're the fragile. They're the, the, they're the ones that depend on us to make good decisions to take care of them in a democracy and Mm -hmm. who's making those decisions and who's asking them because they can't get out and protest they can't have a march they don't feel well enough to do it yeah right right they can't have a march
0: so I want to change direction slightly sure Uh, I can already see we're going to have another show
1: Uh, (laughs) well that's fine it's always a pleasure Richard
0: (laughs) thank you Um, I have a question from chat, and I don't know if you can address this or how you can address this, but I'll just – a person in chat, I have a chat room, is asking that they have a friend who is having pain from leukemia. Is plain CBD oil good, or what would you think – what do you recommend? I know you wouldn't recommend, but what would you think?
1: Well, so, you know, as far as recommendation, we always have to sort of put a disclaimer in that, you know, I'm not the patient's physician or, you know, just so that you understand where I'm coming from, coming from a generalized knowledge of cannabis. Um, Cannabis is good for all types of um, cancer. And, in fact, the government hasn't known for years, since 1974, that THC kills cancer cells. So CBD is a powerful anti-inflammatory and to the extent that um, that is problematic for the patient, it, it will never hurt you. THC is the real powerhouse behind um, pain reduction and um, cancer reduction because it has properties that identify rapidly mutating cells that are abnormal, and then it attacks those cells. And, so, and it's also good for pain um, in that it seems to be the mitigator of pain. The downside to that is so you have to look at two things. You have to look at CBD mitigating pain uh, with THC, and if the patient does not want to have an intoxication, intoxicating effect from the THC, which may be desirable at night because it can help you sleep and can relieve your pain, I recommend combination therapy. So, two like a two CBD to one THC. might be just start start even one to one go to two to one, and then increase. But not necessarily with cannabis, more is not necessarily better. So when that patient hits that sweet spot, that's determined by them. And they say, this is the most helpful. And they may, it may be a process. It can take up to six weeks, really, or even a little bit longer. And then just when you think you got your head wrapped around what's helping you, um, it can change. Or, and so people are starting to look at what's called chemovars, and that's what makes up the plant that you're taking. And so people start are starting to looking at the components, noting the components of what of the cannabis that works well for them. And if you're getting it from a dispensary, they should have it all tested out for you and then trying to replicate that in any strain that you're getting. So that's my answer to them. There, there's really not a downside in that. I certainly hope that your friend with leukemia Um, can benefit from some experimentation with cannabis.
0: And how in general do you suggest um, or would you think is a good way for people to start? Let's say somebody has a, a, let's start a little easier and say somebody has an arthritic knee or an inflammation or something that they want to deal with some pain. They want to stop, you know, they would want to try and reduce. Maybe they're not on medication to begin with. They just have an ache a chronic ache and they'd like to take something so that they could sleep better at night. Do you have a way, what's your suggestion for people to start in terms of trying to see if they can help relieve some of that pain for themselves?
1: So I always, there's two ways that I've heard people suggest that um, people start on cannabis regime, patients start. And some of the physicians that are very well renowned in cannabis suggest sublingual application so that is a um, sort of like an oil that goes under your tongue. And so if people take nitroglycerin tablets for chest pain, they know what I'm talking about. You put it under your tongue, it's rapid absorption, it's very vascular, mm-hmm. but it can be messy and sort of taste, uh, taste bad. And, um, but you can dose pretty correctly. I always say, though, I think the best way is to smoke. Just do some inhalation because the onset of action is very quick. It's usually within about four minutes. And it peaks at about 10, and the duration is about two hours. And uh, just take one hit. If you just take one inhalation off, and I prefer the raw flour um, and uh, using either a glass pipe or a joint that maybe has um, organic rolling paper. How do you know it's organic? You can call the, you can definitely call the company. Ask them how they test it, why they call it organic, what it is, um, and then I recommend that because of the quick onset of action and resolution of the symptoms. And but it's rough. And so right now I work with a company uh, called Weegits, and that's w-e-e-d-g-e-t-s dot com. And uh, these very small apparatuses that are very inexpensive create a more pleasant, when, when paired with a filter, create a very pleasant um, experience and almost creates a vapor of the mist because the, when, you, when you smoke organically, you can get some debris in your mouth when you inhale. So I like to recommend that just because patients will know quickly how they react to that cannabis preparation, and then they can translate that to an edible. And so a, a practice of somebody that's using cannabis might be take it in the day. I recommend it taking it more toward the evening when you know you have nothing else to do. Start out, go, just get yourself, even if you want to get a couple of pre-rolls, uh, pre-rolled joints or some flour and get your, just invest in a small little um, glass pipe, grind it up, and then you take one sip or inhale, and it's going to be rough, and a lot of people will cough, drink some ice water, and then wait and see how you're affected. If If you get the desired relief with one puff, that's great. If not, take another one, and you'll know within five minutes. And that way people don't have a tendency, never start with an edible, because you're always going to want to eat that whole brownie, and then you're going to be tripping. I'm only kidding <laughs> But I mean you could You, you really could and, Or you're going to be sleeping for a long time And make sure that you have a place where you can sleep Because a lot of people um, Restoration means that they, they actually get to sleep And a lot of people haven't slept for a long time If they're looking to cannabis for relief So those are my recommendations I always recommend that way That worked for me when I first started um, using cannabis, and I had never been a cannabis user until you know later in life. You, you know, just when you think you got it all figured out, you you become a proponent of cannabis, and your world blows up. So, it's been fun. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. it's exciting. <laughs> and I
0: will, and I will say that um, from personal experience, edible. You know, absolutely, I'm with uh, Elizabeth. Don't start with edibles. They're no. they're tricky. Because by the time you realize you're there, you're like, and you're and there. you've got a brownie. You're gonna eat that brownie. Everybody who has ed- done edibles has made that mistake. Oh, I'll get this carrot cake. It'll be great. I'll take a bite. Are you kidding? It's carrot cake. Um,
1: exactly. So
0: really, you you need something in a controlled, easily deliverable, small dose. There's a really uh, the product called Mondo. And it's a, a woman down in Southern California who makes a coconut extract of cannabis, and then she dehydrates it. And so it's a powder. And so oh, you have nice. a, tea, a, a small scoop that has five milligrams of THC with some CBD in it. She also makes a, an adjust CBD form with a trace of THC in it. Yeah. But the nice thing about it is that you can take a scoop of it and toss it in your mouth and the powder dissolves on your palate, or you can put it on top of your morning latte or your morning matcha or your whatever you want. And oh, that sounds very five,
1: nice, and five mil- and milligrams is good.
0: Five milligrams is a very casual, easy to Once you get used to it, it's a good, uh, again, as an herbalist, I think about things as, uh, use words like nervines, which means it's soothing to the nervous system. Um, I think and ultimately someday we'll realize that CBD is a long-term beneficial effect herb, meaning a tonic herb, so it has that benefit on the long term. It's good for the nerves. It's good for most everything. Um, so I think really the idea of starting out with, I'm really fascinated now with the widgets because for I'll many people that. taking, uh, great, uh, because because yep. many people have a hard time with the idea of, either a rolling a joint if you're if you haven't done it it's like what am i doing
1: oh yeah that takes some dexterity
0: (laughs) and (laughs) and going to a dispensary and getting a joint if you don't know what you're doing because this is the whole this is why we'll be a part two because there's the whole idea of getting educated because again we're back to the doctors can't really talk to you about it because the feds are still out to get it that's my opinion yes
1: Well, and even in my state, my statute does not, our state law does not provide for physician education, as crazy as that sounds. They can say, we'll write you a recommendation because we believe that you will be, the benefit will outweigh the harm of cannabis, and that's that. That's the way, so that's why education is the next frontier, and patient-controlled, taking control of their health and wellness is sort of the next frontier. In what we're looking at, which was started by cannabis, so you are exactly right. Yes, doctors and, don't really know. And
0: being an being an educated consumer, again, we had talked about this backstage. I mean, that's one of the things about Sherry Edwards' work, is that it's about you being empowered. You can do research on your own status, so that if you then when you do go to a practitioner, you have information and questions for them, and it's a team. It's not you going, we have this, we have this odd relationship to our health where at some point, uh, well, in the veterinary world, they would call it bright light, shiny table syndrome, where you go to the doctor and you go, yeah, I don't know, help me. And it's it's an odd versus I have questions about what's going on. Can you help me? (laughs) Right. And it's a very exactly. different position to be empowered, and it's the same thing with cannabis. You you need people like such as yourself who are advocating for it, but who are really getting people information about it. And that's why there will be a part two because we have to talk about all that. I want to talk about well, dosages and the things and figuring it all out. And there's so
1: much of that to talk oh, about.
0: there's a boat I mean, that's why there will be a part two we, because we that's a whole, do a whole series complicated thing
1: and how people suffer. Yes. And, You know, I I talk about Because at the root of all this Is that people are suffering And if you follow Dr. Ethan Russo Who is, I believe, lives in um, California um, He has postulated the uh, Chronic endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome And his theory is that We do not take in plant So we have a hunger for cannabinoids You make them yourself So everybody should know that, that you actually create cannabinoids in your body that feed your endocannabinoid system. And to the extent that you have robust internal cannabinoids, you are healthy. But with the uptick in chronic illness, Dr. Russo theorizes, it's very hard to prove, that when cannabis became illegal in the 40s, we took not only cannabis but its sister hemp out of the Mm. animal supply and out of our grasses, and we replaced it with GMO, and we replaced hemp packaging with plastics. And that, therefore, there are many diseases, and they call them, I just heard uh, somebody talking today about the three, fibromyalgia. It was actually Dr. Stein um, out of Florida. Fibromyalgia. IBS, and migraines as being very responsive to cannabis. And there, is a, there are theories that we once people start replacing some of the cannabinoids that the body is hungry for with the plants, which match perfectly our internal cannabinoid system, complemented perfectly, that people get better. And that's why people get better in so many disease processes is because if it's the mother modulator of homeostasis and balance and wellness, and it is under-cared for, under-supported, because we're no longer eating, ingesting, or taking in our cannabinoids, you start to see health decline. And we're seeing an uptick, as we talk, of Alzheimer's, neuromodulating diseases, ALS, MS, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune diseases. We're seeing an uptick in autism. At the rate the autism is being diagnosed now, I heard somebody told me that within 20 years, one in 20 children will be diagnosed with so, somewhere on the spectrum. And hmm. why so much Alzheimer's and dementia? You know, when I talk to elderly patients who were born and received uh, medicine off the pharmacopeia I'll always tell them if you were born before 1940 you've used cannabis and they say oh no we've never used cannabis you know they're all so cute they've never used cannabis and I say yeah you have your mother gave it to you maybe that's why you're the greatest generation because it was in your preparations that you took when you were children right and you're living you're all sitting here looking fabulous in your 80s and 90s and you're going to go out and walk on the treadmill and how does that happen you know, they lived through the great you know the great war and how does that all happen well maybe it was because you got your cannabis when you were a baby and you built up those stores of a healthy cannabinoid system I don't oh, know boy. Richard. there's a, there's a, just a lot to ponder
0: Right there is and I think actually that I think that's a that's a, an amazing uh, we we're, we're at that time where we have to stop But I think that's such a great close. You're here and you're healthy because you had had cannabis as a kid. No, I didn't. Oh, yeah. sure. there was a compounding pharmacist grinding it up somewhere. That's right. Your mother gave it to
1: you. As soon as you say your mother gave it to you, they always seem to settle down a little bit.
0: I've never smoked <laughs> cannabis.
1: No, no. Yeah. You got it in that syrup your mom. mom exactly. Gave you, when you, were eating. you got it in
0: that cough syrup. You That's got it right. in that exactly. thing. Instead of Ipecac, your grandmother gave you some kind of cannabis compound to settle your stomach yeah. with ginger. Amazing.
1: Exactly. Exactly. All and right. Bam, you boost your endocannabinoid system and here you sit at ninety two <laughs> talking to me about
0: it. <laughs> my, grandmother my grandmother lived to be hundred my grandmother lived to be hundred and six. So yes. Well, okay, so where can people go to find out more about your work? And are you writing a book yet? But that's a separate show. Let me just close. Well, you know, Where can people find show. out more about you?
1: <laughs> we could find out more about, you know, a couple great references. The Sacred Plant, uh, my friend John Malanka is the host of The Sacred Plant. He's out located out in the San Francisco area, but this is an international movement and like the, they can find them on Facebook. Um, you certainly can go to um I'm on LinkedIn if you want to uh post comments and I do get them. I can be um yeah, I can give you my um email address if you want. You know, you can if people want to ask for it, you'll know, you certainly can hand it out. I don't I don't think I have to okay. Go over the whole shebang, but we can find right. out if you want to post how to get a hold of me. But right now, I think uh, the sacred Plan is doing a very nice job. On, and then there are scholarly articles uh, written, and I always recommend that everybody start their cannabis introduction by watching The scientists. and that's the story of Dr. Raphael Mishulam, and he was mm-hmm. up for the Nobel Prize for his work in um, medical marijuana. So yeah. I always say start pull, pull that up on YouTube and spend a good uh, – it's an hour well spent – and then, um, you know, people can certainly send you questions and maybe for our next time we can have a um, conversation about it. And uh, I'll be doing more work and I'll be more public, so people will have an easier time finding me. But um, <laughs> okay. right now they can find me
0: through you. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll be your agent. I'm happy to be There your you agent. go. Thanks. Um, all right, everybody. That was stupendous. There will be a part two. I promise everybody now there will be a part two. Have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you.